let's, you know what to do. Go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter, five, uh, chapter 4. We've got a little bit of 4 left this morning. We'll be starting in verse 24. It's page 47 of a Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along with us there. Well, maybe the simplest and yet deepest question that mankind can ask is the single word, why? In many ways, it's the question that separates mankind from every other aspect of creation. We don't just ask who, and we don't just ask what, or how, or where, like other animals do, creatures do, but we also ask why. It's a question that children stumble upon from a very young age, usually somewhere around two or three, and when they do, they ask it to literally everything that you say. Our three-year-old daughter, I think, has just come out of this initial phase, we hope. She's got a little bit of a speech issue, so she would always go, yai. <laughs> but yai, and as a parent, it's honestly, it's cute at first. You know, you want to encourage that curiosity, you give them the answer, and then it becomes very not cute very fast. Um, and ultimately, the, the time frame in which you give the answer, because I said so, all right? Like, it goes from, like, the fifth yai to the first yai. And in some ways, we grow out of asking that in that way, but in other ways, we grow into it. No matter how old you are, the deepest, hardest parts of life that we confront, we still ask, or usually think, but don't voice, why? It's a question that gets you beneath the surface. It's, it's a question that brings a conversation with somebody into the realm of purpose and meaning. There, there's kind of an intellectual side of it, and there's an emotional side of it. Because you could say the simple comment, I'm a Christian. Well, what makes you a Christian? I can answer that. How did you become a Christian? I can answer that. When did you become a Christian? I can answer that. But how about the question, hey, why are you a Christian? And if you're speaking with a non-believer that you're close with at some point, why are you not a Christian? When getting to know someone, especially somebody you love and care about, I think that's the most interesting question you can ask. You can go down the line. Why do you trust the Bible? Man, this is a pretty ancient book. We preach it from it every week. We rely on it a lot. We see it as really important. It shapes a lot of the decisions we make as a church and as individuals. But why do you trust the Bible? It's a good question. Why do you stay a Christian even when tragedy hits, when suffering occurs, when it seems like life is out of control, which means either God can't change it, or maybe even worse, he could change it, but for whatever reason, he's choosing not to. Why would you stay a Christian? And maybe the hardest, most emotional question of all that we face on various levels at various times in different seasons of life, why does God do the things he does? Why, why does he allow certain things to happen? Why does he not remove other things? Why? 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 This morning in our passage, we're going to see the question, why, occur five different times. It's going to be asked by different people, believers and non-believers, in different situations from different vantage points. And right out of the gate, we, as the readers of this text, are going to be the ones asking, Why? Some of you have read ahead in Exodus, which I love when you do that, but I know it, 
this week because you've been texting me, why? And as I told you via text, as affectionately as I could, it's a great question. Wait till Sunday because I need to figure it out. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, keep listening. All right. We're going to read first. Chapter 4, pick it up in verse 24. We're going to take this through to verse 31. At this point, sorry, as a reminder, uh, Moses had been in a long dialogue with God at the burning bush. We saw that the last two weeks. Moses is wondering in all his flaws and insecurities how it could be that he is the one that's going to go down to Egypt and, and, and help to free God's people from Egypt and Pharaoh. And God, in various ways, in various um, kind of happening, said, I will be with you. The great I am. I will go before you. Moses finally concedes. God convinces him, and he goes. He gets his wife. He gets his two sons, and they begin the journey. And that's where we are. Chapter 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Breathe. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him in, at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel that he, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. The common thread that we're going to pull through our entire passage this morning is that when somebody asks why, they're not so much looking for a certain answer, but they're looking to trust in the one who is answering. When you ask why, it's not that you need a certain answer, it's that you need to be convinced that I can trust the person who is answering. So number one, we are to trust in God's discipline and plan. So Moses is ready to go. He's not totally confident, but God persuaded him, and he goes and he's off, and on the way, the Lord seeks to put him to death. So even before we unpack what's going on here, a couple things. One of the reasons why I trust the Bible is true is because over and over again, there are verses and passages in there that you would never put in there if you were making it up. Right? If this was a book written by man, I want to try and convince people and start a movement and just start it from scratch, there's a lot in your Bible that would not be in there. Like verse 24 of chapter 4. Why is it in there then? You know why? Because it's true. And it's real, and reality is messy and complex, and it's never as neat and packaged up as it would have been if we were the ones writing it. And part of our confusion with this verse is that we struggle to comprehend that God would ordain a difficult path for those who agree to follow him. I think this, all believers can fall into this trap, but I think especially new believers who um, they thought their time of wrestling with God is before they became a Christian. It's before they agreed to follow and obey God. And once that time of wrestling ends, you become a Christian and then smooth sailing right into the end. And it's not that way. Because God loves you too much to not keep working on you and in you until glory. 
So on the way, at a lodging place, the Lord seeks to put him to death. Do I have an ironclad, firm understanding as to why these verses are here? The answer is no. And a good bit of advice I got on preaching when I began was, do not make major points on verses that are majorly vague. So future preachers, there you go. That's for you. But the reason why God sought to put Moses to death, while it's not explicitly stated, we get no forewarning of it, it's not explicitly stated, but it is, I think, plainly implied. Moses did not circumcise his son. And by not circumcising his son, he deliberately disobeyed the Lord's covenant command to his people. Now, why was it this moment that God sought to put him to death after the burning bush, after God took all that time to convince him to go. Um, and, and why would he have not done it earlier? Why do it here? Do I know why the timing? No. But maybe he waited in his providence until Zipporah, his wife, could be in a position to deliver him. And we see here again, like we have seen multiple times in the opening chapters of Moses, that God uses the decisive and bold action of a woman to carry out his purposes. You have, starting in chapter 1, you have the midwives and their boldness. You have Moses' mother, Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter, now Moses' wife. All were vital in the work of saving and sustaining Moses. Without these women, Moses would have never been known for the mighty works he is known for. Without this, these women, this man would have been nothing, and all the women in here said, Amen! Right? Why does the man get all the credit? Why do we think about Moses? How about all these women that he relied on? Say it louder for the people in the back. Right? <laughs> My goodness. Um, Zipporah steps in. She's not of Hebrew heritage. She's a Midianite. She's outside the people of God. And she does what Moses should have done. She circumcises her son and says, almost in exasperation to Moses, surely you are a bridegroom to me. To which Moses, writing this years after the fact, gives his own editorial comment. You know, she said that because of the circumcision. So you might ask, why does that even matter? Why is God getting so upset over this? This makes God look just kind of angry and kind of like out of control. Um, again, not major points, but I think we can safely say this. Um, when God instated circumcision as the covenant sign amongst his chosen people, to Abraham, back in Genesis 17, he clearly said to Abraham that every male throughout your generations should receive this sign or else they will be cut off from my people. There's kind of wordplay there. He was showing the importance of the people of God being marked out, marked out for his glory, that you cannot know God apart from his covenant promises, that you cannot know God apart from the shedding of blood, a theme that would go all throughout the Bible. And to not do it was a blatant sign of disobedience, and it was due to the fear of man. Why didn't Moses do it? could be a lot of reasons. Maybe he just was not in within Israel anymore. Maybe he grew up as an Egyptian and didn't really even care about this. Maybe he was in the land of Midian and he was afraid of his father-in-law, who's also his boss, afraid of his non-Hebrew wife, having to convince them, oh, you know, they don't do this, why do I have to impose this on them and their culture? And so he didn't do it. 
But either way, how can Moses be expected to lead an entire nation if he can't even lead his own family? Clearly, this stuck out as a memorable moment for Moses. Not just that God sought to put him to death, but that also that God provided an intercessor in the form of his wife to deliver him from death. So if you want to take away from this weird verse, it's this. Not that we have an angry God that we have to make sure we keep him happy or else he's going to drop the hammer on us. It's not the point. But rather that we have a holy God who provides a deliverer to shed blood on behalf of someone who did not obey. That's the point. That's the gospel thread through that verse. Before Moses could be used to deliver others, he himself must be delivered. So that's what I got. If you're not satisfied, let me know after. I'll give you the email address of a smarter pastor than me. But the reason we can trust God in his discipline is because he proves himself faithful according to his plan. Trust his discipline and trust his plan. God's promise to go before Moses into the land of Egypt was not canceled out by his discipline. But as we see, he and Aaron get together, they meet, they turn around, they go back to Egypt. And we see a beautiful fulfillment of God's promise to Moses in the last two chapters that we saw. That the people of Israel will hear And they'll see and they'll believe. If you remember, this is what Moses was so concerned about when he at the bush. He goes, How are they gonna believe me? They're not gonna listen to my voice. This is kind of crazy. And God says, I will be with you, and you will show them the signs, and you will tell them, and they will believe. And that's exactly what happens. There's no initial kickback from these elders. They saw, they believed, they worshiped. All is good. And now we turn to chapter five. Verses 1 through 4. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Number two, trust God in the face of opposition. Trust God in the face of opposition. Moses and Aaron have a lot of momentum at their back coming out of their meeting with the elders. They're confident. They come before Pharaoh with conviction, with boldness. Let my people go. I would love to know how they got such easy access to Pharaoh, by the way. Like, perhaps Moses leveraged his past with the royal family. Maybe this Pharaoh's, a, I don't know, an old stepbrother of his, cousin he grew up with. But if, like, you just decided now I'm going to go down to Trenton and meet with the governor of New Jersey... Like, let alone, like, higher ranks of authority, just the governor. I don't think you can just go do that. I don't think you would just get into a one-on-one meeting. But Moses gets there, and he plainly says, let my people go, that they will hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, unsurprisingly, who is the Lord? Notice the Lord there, all caps in your Bible, especially if you're reading ESV. That's the name Yahweh from chapter 3, verse 14, the great I am. He said, who's that? Who's that that I should obey him? I don't know him. So, uh, no, I will not let your people go. 
I imagine that even requesting that of Pharaoh could have easily put these guys' lives in danger. But nonetheless, they answer his question. This is the God of the Hebrews, and he has met with us. So let us go three days' journey to sacrifice to the Lord, lest he fall upon us with a sword. There's a warning. I don't think Moses and Aaron were now giving a different request. I think it was the same request as the first time, just different wording. A three days journey into the wilderness where they could sacrifice to the Lord is the same as a feast to the Lord. So perhaps they were only requesting three days because they knew if Pharaoh would not even submit to that, that there's no way he would let them go for good. Maybe this was an initial test for Pharaoh. Maybe they weren't just being dishonest. And yet, even with a lesser request, Pharaoh's hardness of heart is exposed. He says, I will not let them go. And it's not just a no, it's a no with some anger behind it. Right? He hears Moses' warning that, uh, that the pestilence and the sword from God will come down on Pharaoh and all of the land if he does not comply. And that doesn't sit right with the king. The king doesn't like to feel threatened. And so he decides he's going to cast some judgment of his own. Moses and Aaron, why are you distracting all the people, man? Get out of here. And while I'm sure Moses was upset about this, he can't say he was surprised. Just as God told him that the elders of Israel are going to listen, so he told Moses as well that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. He will not listen. And from here, things go south quickly. Let's see how Pharaoh retaliates. Hang with me here. We're going to read verse 5 to 21. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task, making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The four men of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and they have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Number three. 
Trust God in times of hardship. Trust God in times of hardship. That last line in verse 21 is telling. The four men say to Moses and Aaron, now you have made us the object of Pharaoh's wrath. And you notice the words he said, you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Because Moses had told Pharaoh that if he doesn't listen, God will come upon him with a sword. And Pharaoh's like, let's see who has the sword now. Puts himself in God's seat. And what he did, that was kind of wordy, that passage, but he, what he did was pretty simple to explain. The Israelites had a daily quota of bricks they were to make. Bricks that would build up these cities of fortification for Egypt to protect them from enemy invasion. And the organizational structure of this process was such. You had taskmasters that were Egyptians. You had foremen who were basically middle managers that were Hebrews. And then you had the slaves or laborers who were also the Hebrew people. And in the process of brick making, the last step of the process is stacking and building bricks where straw was used to keep them in place. So the taskmasters and foremen, apparently in this process, were the ones who got the straw. They would get the straw, they'd bring it to the ones who were making the bricks, and it made the process and the quota attainable each and every day. Now Pharaoh says, okay, you make them get the straw themselves, but you keep the daily quota of bricks the same. It is more level of work expected in the same time frame. You have to do more in the same time frame and still keep your quota the same. So um, not to compare anyone today to ancient slaves in Egypt, but some of you might be able to resonate with this more than others. Somebody at your work left or got laid off, and the boss said, the output of this team has to stay the same, but you're one man down or one woman down. And what's that mean? Y'all got to do more work and keep it going the same or else the higher-ups won't be happy. And when they inevitably, in two days, don't produce the same number of bricks, the foremen, who again are the middle managers, they get beaten for it. And they get asked, hey, why aren't you giving us the same number of bricks? And so the foremen are like, are you kidding me? And they bring their complaints right to the boss. In times of hardship, they go to Pharaoh and they ask a question of their own, Why? Do you treat us this way? And Pharaoh goes plainly, listen, your leaders asked for time off to go sacrifice to the Lord, which must mean one thing. You guys have too much time on your hands. We have made it too easy for you. Because if you didn't have all that time on your hands, you would not be requesting to go to feast and sacrifice to the Lord. So, no, the rule stays Get to work, work harder, same number of bricks, you're not getting the straw beforehand. So that's the gist. That's, again, pretty simple to track in our minds. Here's what we need to take note of. The foremen, in their time of need, begged Pharaoh for help, not the Lord. They heard previously God was going to deliver them. They worshipped God. But when things got hard... When they took a turn for the worse, they sought relief back with their slave master and not their God. The key words in that whole exchange between the foreman and Pharaoh were when the foreman referred to themselves in verse 16 as your servants. Do you notice that? 
Why are your servants being treated this way? No straw is be given to your servants. That's a far cry from the end of chapter 4 when they are worshiping God. And it exposes the all too easy tendency people have to make a deal with sin in times of hardship. To negotiate with the darkness. To, as the popular saying goes, make a deal with the devil. Because while we love the idea of God delivering us and God saving us and we worship him for that fact, when things take a turn for the worse, when things get hard and difficult, how true is it that we are tempted now to run back to that sin that so easily entangled us? Back to the sin that promises the sense of comfort in that moment. Where we are fooled into thinking that deliverance will come from that which cannot ever deliver. We have to be honest. The reason why temptation is so hard is because sin feels so good. And it provides us a false promise. It's a strange comfort that we are drawn in by in our bodies and our minds, to go back to the comfort of alcohol, back to the comfort of lust and pornography, back to the comfort of prideful thoughts that everybody else is the problem, I'm fine, back to the temptation to gossip, to lie, to curse. We think that the sin we were promised victory over will actually be the thing that will help us most when things get hard. And we all have our vices, don't we? A struggle for somebody else might not be a struggle for us, but we got our struggles, you know? And the times that you are tempted most to sin are when things get hard. When there's a moment of emotional or physical despair, when all of a sudden running back to that feels and looks so promising. And when it inevitably doesn't work, because it never works, never in the long term, we blame shift like the foreman did. They come out, And they see Moses and Aaron anxiously waiting to see what did Pharaoh say. And they unload on them. You did this. This is your fault. Almost implying, you know, we were fine until you came along. We were just doing great as slaves. And then you messed it up. Well, let's finish the chapter. There's just two verses left. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Fourth and final, trust God with your whys. Trust God with your whys. You know, at first glance, I know at first glance for me, when I read this passage, you're probably, like me, prone to condemn Moses for what he's doing here. Oh, he's back at it again, man. What a lack of faith he has. Just grumbling to the Lord, second-guessing God. Who are you, Moses? But when you study this passage, I don't think that's the takeaway here. Because you know why? In chapter 6, which we're going to cover next week, God does not get angry with Moses. And we've seen multiple times, including the beginning of the sermon, God is capable of being angry with Moses. But not here. 
Chapter 6 is all about assurance. Meaning he is allowing, even understanding, Moses' outburst here. He is understanding Moses' questions. Why? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why aren't you stepping in? Why did you send me? This is going horribly. I can't do this. And so the major point and the contrast in this passage is between the foremen of Israel and Moses of what they do when things go wrong. The foremen drifted from God and pleaded to Pharaoh. Moses drew near to God and plead, pleaded, pled directly to him. This is Moses groaning, not grumbling. He is asking, not in doubt, but I think in faith. Faith that God has an answer, even though Moses can't see it. We literally sang it this morning. Faith that he is working, even when we don't see it. This is a picture that is painted for us. And the question that gets posed to each one of you this morning is this. Where do you go when things don't occur as you hoped? Where do you bring your disappointments? Do you trust the Lord with your whys in faith as opposed to trusting them to sin in doubt? And we can talk from the mundane of whatever's circling in your mind right now, whatever situation, whatever person, whatever relationship, the daily happenings of life to the gut-wrenching turns of life. Do you turn to sin's slave master or to sin's deliverer? What do you do when you stand for God and walk in faithful obedience and everything still hits the fan? What do you do when you share your faith and you've got all the boldness and it gets thrown right back in your face? What do you do when you do the right thing at work and your boss despises you for it? What do you do when you stand up against the bully at school and then you get bullied even worse in return? What do you do where you or someone you love does what's right and then things get worse? What do you do with a sudden death in the family? What do you do about hard news from a loved one that crushes you? What do you do with financial strain that you feel like you can never overcome? It seems like these are the kind of situations where we just ask, why? And one of the things that all the heroes of the Bible, the men and women, have in common in times of suffering is that they went towards God and not away from him. They lean in, not bow out. Jacob wrestled with God. David asked, will you be distant forever? Job wondered why he was ever born. Jeremiah wondered what in the world God was doing with Israel. And most notably, Jesus asked on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? It's the simplest and deepest question you can ask when your heart hurts, when your mind is confused. And if there's nothing else you get from this morning, get this. God doesn't get angry when you ask him why. In fact, he models it himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's better to ask God, and by extension, other believers and leaders in your church, the question why, than to 
stuff it all together to yourself. And next week, we're going to hear God address it. But for today, we got to end here. we got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We need to understand that the answer does not always immediately come. And in those moments, God may not tell you why, but he will always give you himself, and he is enough. So as your pastor, as your fellow member, brother in Christ, I don't always know why God does the things he does. In fact, when most people ask me, you know what my answer is? I don't know. But I do know that it's not because he doesn't love you. Because he sent his one and only son to die for you that you might have life in him. And that's not a non-answer. It's the only answer that will sustain hope and spark perseverance. You can trust God with your why. And it's because of the who. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even the passages that initially confuse and are puzzling. Lord, knowing that you provide us insight. You provide us a community to walk through it together, Lord, to bring understanding, to stir affection for you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would trust, that we would trust your plan, that we would trust you in the face of opposition, that we would trust you in times of hardship, and most importantly, Lord, that we would trust you with our wise. Lord, provide us comfort in the waiting. Allow us to understand how much you love us, a love that is unfathomably strong. And Father, let us lean into that this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen.